Hello legends, welcome to today's show. Catching up with Cub, as always, is brought to you by Cub, the Club of United Business, Australia's number one members club connecting our country's top entrepreneurs and business leaders. And today I catch up with Cub member Andy Watson, a partner at accounting firm Smith Futural. Andy is a founding member here in Melbourne and a great friend of mine, and he shared tons of tips and tricks, uh, super important for all business owners on, on topics such as things that the 1% of wealthiest people do in order to maximize their wealth. He spoke about structuring companies and utilizing trust to minimize uh, tax. How much cash you should hold as a business? How much cash should we hold? Who knows? Well, we had a great chat about that too. It was a brilliant conversation. I hope you enjoy the show. Mate, I was reading your prep sheet and I saw one of the funniest uh, success stories from Cub ever. Yeah. You found your wedding celebrant through the club. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> How? Well, tell us the story. So we were- How long ago in, did you get married? I got married 7th of March last year. Okay, so tell us the story. just before COVID. Yeah. Um, we were in the clubhouse for the Melbourne clubhouse's first birthday. Okay. And- I'd come straight after work and was having a few drinks and only knew a handful of members from the welcome evenings and, you know, that were, and networking that was done sort of for the first 12 months of the Melbourne clubhouse. And I ran into one of members that I'd spoken to and hung out with a couple of times, Anant, who um, has the water tank business mm -hmm. and was talking to him and having a beer. And we were talking about that I was preparing, planning our wedding and getting through everything and, just booked our photographer, looking for our celebrant. And he, he turned around and he goes, my wife's a celebrant. And I go, you're kidding. And he goes, give me two seconds. And he ran off and brought his wife back, Sharmini, because he'd brought her along to the party. And I had a few, you know. Drinks by that point. Drinks by that point <laughs> and chats with her. And I had a really good chat with her. And she sort of, I think, does it part-time or, or was doing it as a bit of a hobby at the time. And um, we kept, you know, I, I sort of really enjoyed talking with her and loved the uh, – you know, the, the conversation and just her approach. And I came home half cut and um, told my wife I found our celebrant. She goes, no, you didn't. And I go, no, we did. And booked a coffee, you know, somewhere between our place and theirs. And wife finished up and she goes, I loved her. It was perfect. No it was way. unbelievable. <laughs> so, yeah, so then we caught up with her three or four more times, sorted out all of our speeches and, you know, our, our sort of, you know, ceremony stuff. But, yeah, she, um, yeah, she did our, our wedding it's uh, <laughs> incredible. Yeah. You know what's funny about that? So many uh, members tell me that, oh, I came in expecting this and, you know, I was surprised to have gotten this from the club. You know, it's just shit like that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, it's like random stuff that you would never you expect. You get the most random, yeah. yeah I've, I've so made funny. more friends, I think, you know, out of being at Cub than, than necessarily done business at the moment. Yeah. But I think that's perfect. Like that's but, been exactly what I wanted. And we're in the business of 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 making friends between between entrepreneurs and business owners. Mm. And and what did you? Because uh, you you're one of the very very first Melbourne members. Yeah. Um. What, what were you looking for at the time? Why Why did you get involved? Yeah. So I was <laughs> to find a wedding celebrant. No. Yeah. Apparently, I wasn't even engaged at the time. Um. I was looking at business clubs and members clubs in Melbourne and, and realized that they were pretty stale, pretty, uh, not, not really great, not, not really good for what I was wanting 
you know, them for. And I actually had the idea that I was going to go and start one, a members club, maybe not necessarily a business networking club, but, but something, you know, designed for members, um, as more of a social sort of aspect. And then I ended up coming across Cub somehow, um, and saw that it was set up in Sydney and it was doing really well. And I thought, geez, that, that's great. It'd be great if we had something like that in Melbourne. And then lo and behold, I found an article that, you know, in Business Insider or some, you know, yeah, online we thing. <laughs> and the, they're opening in Melbourne. And I said, all right, send a link through and came and met with you because yeah. you were doing all the sales at the time in Melbourne. And um, I think I said to you that I was looking for somewhere, you know, running a business or, you know, being involved in a business. You can't really talk to your staff about the frustrations because some of them are sometimes frustrating you. Um, and then you, when you're talking with your friends, you don't really want to um, – talk to them about work and business because it's just not – you don't want to blur those lines sometimes. Sometimes sometimes uh, they just happen to be in a different uh, situation. It's just not relatable. No, yeah. no, that's right. They, you know, a lot of them are employees and they're, they're just employees. They haven't got that accountability and, and that's awesome because I'm friends with them because of their personalities, not the businesses that they work in. Um, but I needed somewhere – I wanted somewhere where I could be in between, where I could talk about my work stuff and it wasn't socially – awkward to talk about work, um, but I could still let my hair down and not worry about selling or, or doing anything, you know, that I had to be completely, you know, by the book. Um, so you could relax, be yourself and meet other people in your position. Yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't pressured to go and find clients or do anything else like that, like your, your B&Is of the world or things mm-hmm. like that, where they, you have to bring a referral every week to sit down and have a coffee with people. Like mm-hmm. it, it wasn't that I and we'd actually remove you from the club if you were trying to, <laughs> if you were trying to sell to people every week. Good. And um, aside, we're here to learn about you and we're here to soak in your knowledge. Tell us about you. You, you. How old are you now? I'm 32. Oh, you're super young. And and you're a partner at Smith Futural? Yes. Which is a, a brilliant accounting firm that uh, you specialize in. So tell us yeah. just briefly. Yeah. So we're a um, accounting and tax and advisory firm that specializes in small to medium businesses, enterprises. Um, I use the takeaway line a couple of times that you know, the ideal cub member is probably our ideal client, you know, mm-hmm. which is really convenient and good. We try to, you know, provide tax and accounting services for businesses and, and individuals. So I, I sort of say, you know, from your, your cafe worker, you know, your, your person that works at a cafe, you know, Monday to Friday, nine to five, um, to your mum and dad that run a small business, to your, your sort of pretty significant and big businesses. Um, you know, we've got some pretty big ones on our books as well. So and, and so, how long ago did you become a partner? So I became a partner in 2015. Oh, geez. How young were you then? Um, so, would have been, what, 26? So that's, that would be very young to be uh, to be a partner in, yeah. in a firm of, of your stature. Yeah. So my firm did it really well, though. They they gave us the opportunity to buy in um, but kept our role the same as, as a manager as opposed to turning us into partners, directors and sort of putting us out there a little bit more as a business. So it was sort of like we got our training wheels and put them on first and sort of learnt the ropes and then they sort of that slowly sort of frees us up a little bit more, um, which was I think a really good way of of doing it. Um, and, and look, for, for accounting firms, it's it's really smart to, uh, to lock in, you know, young talent because – talent gets poached really easily as, as, as people get more and more senior up the ranks, they, they want to go and, you know, do their own thing. Uh, so they go out on their own and take clients or they, um, 
or they just get a better offer at a bigger firm or they move internally into other businesses. But also um, what I like about that is, okay, yeah, you're not ready to be calling the shots for the firm, Mm. but you are an ambitious person and by giving you the title and the kind of ownership over what you're doing, they would assume that you're going to work harder and better and treat it like your own. And and that concept of giving um, team members, I mean, in your case, it's different. You're a partner in the company, but just, uh, I mean, you could do it for your staff, mm. giving them the sense of ownership over over what they do and, and things like that is, is a very powerful technique. Yeah, I think it is. I think, I think to be fair, the, the people that get offered these opportunities probably have to show that before it's given to them um, because I think if that's the sole motivating factor, then that can potentially um, not lead to the right person or the right attitude. Um, they need to sort of have that accountability and ownership and, and demonstrate that first. But I think once they've sort of demonstrate that, they, you know, I think they should be given every opportunity to sort of grow and succeed. I agree. I agree. And so, so th- th- that's very, very young uh, success. Tell us about you then. Where were you from? You, you mentioned you married. You know, yeah. What was your, what was your upbringing? Yeah. So I am, I grew up in the sort of Eastern suburbs of, of Melbourne in, in a place, Doncaster. Um, I'm an only child. So my parents were sort of blue collar workers, um, Mum worked a, a couple of days a week um, at a you know for Melbourne Pathology on their switchboard, which was uh, which was always good. She had sort of mum hours, being you know you you eleven till three or whatever, or nine till three or whatever it was. So that was sort of good. Um, and dad were dad's a Sparky. He's an electrician. So and still still is sort of working sort of part time by himself and just real hard workers. Um, sort of they they've sort of they've built sort of a really good life for themselves just by punching away and, and working hard. I think mum had two jobs, dad had three and, you know, they sort of bought their first house, paid that off, sold that, built their place out in Doncaster, bought that, you know, paid that off, you know, and, and are still living there. So I've sort of lived in one house all, my, all through my upbringing and until I moved out, you know. And, 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 and so I guess what did you or how did you get into uh, finance, accounting, numbers? It Was that naturally what you were good at or what, what did you want to do at school or? Yeah, so... I, I talked a lot when I was a kid and I still do. Yeah, because um, you're a very social accountant. Yeah, yeah. I, I try to sort of communicate and talk with people a lot <laughs> and, and uh, don't shut up. Um, but I, when I was a kid, I was in primary school, I wanted to, I said to my parents that I wanted to be a lawyer and they've got no idea where it's come from. Like it's throwback. Everyone's been blue collar. No one, I was the first person in my family that went to uni um, sort of thing. So it just, yeah, it just. I seem to be pretty academic compared to, to them and, and understood, you know, uh, maths and English. And then in about year 10, I, I sort of got exposed to, I think they call it small business management, um, or it was back when I went to school, and um, which was sort of like pre-accounting type stuff. And, and I really enjoyed that more than, um, more than anything else. Uh, the numbers sort of just made sense. It not, it's not hard maths. It's just, you know, just social sort of mathematics and, um, and yeah, sort of change. What, t- what type of thing do you mean? Oh, like it's, it's, it's trying to work out like instant, you do your maths classes in high school and you're trying to find like, you know, sine, cos and tan, Pythagoras, theorem, all these really useless things that you don't use in day to day sort of, um, you know, life, but the small business management was like, 
you know, Johnny sells an apple for $5, he buys them for three, what's his margin? Oh, yeah. And things like that. So it, it was not hard mathematics. It's just, it's stuff that you would use on a day-to-day basis. Useful is, mathematics. Yeah, useful, mm. practical. And, um, yeah, so I ch- sort of changed my major from there to uh, to accounting. And, um, you know, when I went to uni, I did at least and uh, and really enjoyed it. Amazing. And and so did, did you, I mean, the, the role of the accountant is a really interesting one. I was telling Laura before we started, I don't actually think we've, um, had uh, someone in accounting on the show before. So you're the first. Yeah, awesome. And it, I was really curious because accounting is something really special because, I mean, your accountant sees you naked almost. Mm. You know, they know what's going on in your business. Yeah. And your accountant also um, can make you or break you. You know, you have a shit accountant, you, you could be fucked. Mm. Um, and I, I guess what do you feel, like how would you describe your job for your clients? How would you describe your role? What, what is it that you do for people as the accountant? What do you think is the most fundamental, important thing? Yeah, so obviously we've got to do the right thing and be legally compliant. And well, I mean, make we're, sure. we're so, starting assuming that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's it. Most people, you know, you need to assume that. Um, but my, my old, you know, boss or mentor said it really well when he used to, people used to ask him what he did and he said, I'm in the communications game. And they said, oh, Telstra, no, he goes, no, 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 I'm an accountant, but my number one job is to communicate to you what's happening in your business so that you can make informed decisions and, um, and understand what's, what's going on. Um, and people sort of, you know, didn't really understand that until, um, you know, they, they didn't really understand that until they, they had a bad experience with an accountant. Um, and as an accountant, People sit there and say, oh, you can save me tax and make me money and all of these sort of things. And yeah, we can do that to an extent. But what we're really better better off at doing is like we have to work inside the parameters of the law. And so the best thing that we can do is communicate to you what your obligations are going to look like in the future and when trends are happening upwards or downwards. Um, I've got some great clients. What, what type of trends? Oh, economic so, trends. Yeah, all economic trends, business performance trends. If people's margins are getting crunched, um, then it's generally meaning that their salespeople aren't selling as effectively, and so they probably need to make a change in that. Um, you know, now so that in six months' time, when they're still not selling effectively, they're not having to put someone off and lay someone off. Um, but we've got clients that you know earn some really, you know, earn consistent money and, and need to pay tax. And, and it's the question to them is explaining to them what their tax obligations are going to be and when they have to pay it so that when the bill comes up, they're not, they haven't, you know, they've got the money put aside. They're ready to sort of, um, you know, they're not, they're not frustrated. They're not scrounging around looking for the money. They, they know it's there. They're aware. It's They know it's coming. Yeah, that's it. And I think it, that that's really interesting. <laughs> Sorry, just to skip a beat. Now I realized why you mentioned the legal thing quickly because your job is to legally minimize tax. Yeah, correct. So you got to work within the the, the, the the law to figure out ways to make sure you pay as little tax as possible. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, um, and you know, we, you know, take advantage of, you know, structuring opportunities and, and things like that. And that's all the technical stuff that we do. But, but the most important thing that we do is communicate and explain to people, you know, in, in layman's terms, why their business is working and why it's, or why it's not, uh, and then what their obligations are. So they don't see 300 grand in the bank. They see 300 less all these obligations. So they've really got a hundred to play with. And the, 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 but I love what your uh, old mentor said. It's the, com- you're in communication. 
The reason I think that it that is genius is because nothing's more important than when an accountant tells you um, uh, isn't forward thinking. They tell you what is now or what has happened rather than what's coming up. And, mm. th- and they just tell you when it's there. It's like, fuck, why didn't you tell me this was happening ages ago? It's almost like the, the best per- – the, the person that would be best at your accounts is, like you said – a good communicator, someone who has the information and can let you know now, but also what's going to happen in the future so that you're able to make decisions. And is that something that you would recommend? Do most accountants do that? Or is that something that you think as the business owner, they should be reaching out to their accountant, to you or whoever saying, hey, listen, I I, I want, you know, regular meeting or regular communication. Absolutely. I I think it's something that, a lot of accountants don't do. Um, more and more accountants are doing it. I think more and more accountants are seeing the value of it. Um, accounting is one of those one of those businesses, though, and it, it's it probably it's its own worst enemy because the historical business model for accountants is to sell time. You know, it's hourly rates mm. generally, and and that's still. I think every business should operate with an hourly rate so that they at least understand what job they're doing and and how well they're doing it um, and how well people are performing. But it's sh- it's it's a guideline. It's not a definitive sort of um, principle. It's it's not you know the be all and end all. I think and accountants are historically get too busy in what they're doing to um, dedicate the time that their clients probably need to sit down and meet with them, go through these sort of things. Um, because they've got too many clients. Yeah, and and just because they they're trying to cram as many billable hours into a day as possible, um, and they sit there and they go. Oh, sh- shit, if I travel half an hour to go and meet with Joe, then I've got to travel half an hour back and, you know, that's not really going to work or, you know, I've got to spend an hour putting together a calendar so this person knows what his mm. tax obligations are coming up. Um, yeah, anything I have to do outside of billable hours, I you, don't want to do You've that. always got another tax return to complete. So you've always got the next job to do. It's So then you're, you're, you're tossing up, do I go and spend another hour on this job or do I go and just do the next job? And so that's that's the constant battle that you that you fight. And that's that's a problem with um, companies that uh, uh, yeah they're billable by the hour. Mm. But but I thought there's some accounting firms that do it where you just pay a monthly fee, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So they they do this fixed price or value billing and and bits and pieces like that. And and I think the industry is heading towards there. I think the best accountants and the best firms do a combination of both. Um, we do. Um, you know, we, so how do you guys work? What's your business model? Yeah, so we, we charge by the hour for everything um, because that's our benchmark and that's how we assess how successful we are or how productive we're, we're being. So we've got productivity targets, we've got billable targets and, and things like that. But at the end of the day, if I've gone and spent six hours working with Daniel on his tax return and that's going to cost him 1500 bucks, and it's not worth that, I've got to be commercial about what I, I do and actually weigh up and go, well, what, is it, what does it feel like it's worth and, and assign it that way? I think the hourly rate and the timesheet modelling that accountants use is a really good tool for evaluating performance and efficiency. But at the end of the day, some jobs you just have to – you can bill more for and some jobs you can't and you've got to always have that model. So yes. even when we – you know, we, we have clients on annual quotes – but behind the scenes, we've got sort of a, a template or a budget of how many hours we expect that job to take in order to do that quote. It's not so just... So it ends up being the amount of hours, roughly. 
Well, yeah, and if we can't do it in that amount of hours, then we're inefficient and we wear that cost. Mm-hmm. Um, likewise, if, if they go and change the change the scope on us, then we've got to have that conversation. And, and so really, as a partner in the firm, mm. you would like to see more accountants because every accountant, um, it really, to, to improve your business model as, or to optimise it, you need more accountants and you need them charging more per hour. Mm. So how can you charge more per hour? By being by providing more specialized advice and not being, you know, not competing with robots. So having specialist accountants. Yeah, specialists and, and people that are adding value to clients. Um, if 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 I cost you twenty grand a year, but I deliver you fifty grand in value, I'm worth I'm very much worth my time. If I cost you twenty grand, or if I cost you five, but I deliver you three, then I'm I'm actually losing you money. And so it's, it's making sure that you can continue adding value to people. And, and that's either by give, putting more money in their pockets, um, which is, you know, in the form of tax savings or assisting them in growing their business. Yeah, can you show them that value? Is yeah, that, absolutely. Yeah. Sometimes, absolutely. Or I'm mitigating downside. That's the other one. It's making sure that you're not going to, you know, go to jail or be penalised for, for things that you've done and, um, making sure that what you're doing is legally compliant so that you, you know, you don't have any adverse repercussions to you. If I was to think about like thinking about an accountant, probably like communication, yes, that's super important in regards to me running my business. But let's say I had probably the fundamental most important thing is what you kind of started with is are they doing, am I doing things legally as a business? Because I don't know whether or not I am. It's up to my accountant to know because it's not my area of expertise. I'm an entrepreneur. I I can, you know, I can improve my model and bring more value to my clients and figure out how to scale. And this is what I do, conceptual stuff. But I I don't know the laws in regards to accounting and taxes. And I could know on a high level, but not detailed. So almost trust is like an accountant that just understands that and keeps you to that. Like, I, I don't know what I'm trying to say. There's all different types of accounts then because you could have the quiet, the typical quiet accountant doesn't speak to you, uh, bad communicator, but they're great with numbers and they sit there and they figure it out. And at least you can trust, okay, well, you hope anyway, that this accountant's done the the legal work for me. Yeah. Then you get the accountant, they, they're capable, they're, they're not just good with numbers, but they're also quite creative. Mm. You know, and, and that accountant can keep you legal and be creative in their ability to save you tax mm. and to, to do things like that. Then you have the accountant that is obviously knows the law, is creative, but also is um, a good communicator. Mm. And therefore they can, they can also tell you what's happening, what's coming up. And so there's like different la- layers to – did I describe that correctly? Yeah. I just, oh, you I absolutely did. Um, the problem you have is you also you don't know you've got a bad accountant until you've got a bad accountant. And the you know, the examples that you just gave there, you know, you might have this person that doesn't speak very well and uh, delivers the perfect result, but he doesn't tell you that he does. So you think he's okay and yeah, well, that's fine. Then you've got this horrible accountant who is blatantly disregarding the law, but communicates so effectively, tells you everything's great, will meet with you regularly and you, you have a really good rapport with, but it's only until you get a knock on the door from the tax man or someone else, you know, or a business oh, owner tax man's or a scariest, customer so or <laughs> things like that, that you, you can end up in a bit of strife. And, and so how do you solve that problem? How do you know? How can a bit, how would I know if my accountant's doing a good job? Well, the, the easiest way is to probably 
reflect and review like everything else. Um, and another accountant is able to able to look at something and say, yeah, most of that stuff's going, you know, to being done right. Um, every accountant's going to pick up little bits and pieces and, and you know, nicks and knacks and tiny changes that they would do things differently. Um, the question you've got is... Is it legal? Yeah, is it legal? And also um, the person that is obviously reviewing your stuff might be motivated to obviously onboard you as a client. And so they're going to try and tell you everything you want to hear. So it's, it, the, the difficult part that you always have is is finding the person that will look and review your you, you know, your books for you and provide you with an honest opinion. And so, so you're saying that business owners should get external accountants just to review. But obviously you have the danger of having someone finding pro- – it's kind of like when I have a designer – design I had this happens I have designers design something for me clubhouse house or my, my apartment or whatnot and you get a new designer another designer comes in and goes oh that's wrong that's wrong it, you know I would have done it differently of course they're going to say that it's almost their job to redesign it for you but yeah but what a uh, one way people could get around that in regards to accounting is um accounts is um having a friend that is uh, that is an accountant, someone yeah. that's non-biased and cub members obviously have the value of having lots of people that they, you know, that they mm. could call upon for non-biased help. That's it. Um, yeah. and, and, and for example, would you be happy to, to assist members? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I'd be more than happy to, to take a cursory glance over something yeah. confidentially and, and just provide them with input to say, yep, that's materially correct. There's, there's bits and pieces that you could definitely look at, at, at changing because they, they definitely would be, I, I, I promise you. And I promise you if someone looked at my stuff, they'd probably find things that they'd change as well. It's similar to like designers. Everyone's got a different opinion on, mm. on certain things. Um, and some I, clients like to run really close to the sun and some some are, uh, you know, really want to put their head but on the But how pillow. do you do that without offending your accountant? Yeah, it, it's it's always the, you know, it's the constant process. Um, you got to have – it's got to be your reason outside. They, see – that's why I've been, I've been meaning to put together a board for ages. And I honestly reckon the most valuable thing a board would give me is the ability to deflect uh, blame to someone else. Yeah. Absolutely. No, it's not me. It's the board. What are you want from me? I'm, I've got to listen to them. I'm the CEO. I've got to, you know, I've got to speak to the board. They're telling me to do that. I've got to ask you. It's not my fault. Yeah, good cop, bad cop. Yeah. Absolutely. I think that's half the board's purpose. <laughs> it's just been a bad cop. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. That's exactly it. Look, it, it's a really hard one and, and it's navigating personalities and people um, and trying to figure out, well, how can I review um, what's going on and make sure that things are right? And it might be whether or not – it might be as simple as asking your accountant say, hey, do you have somebody that I can recommend and, and pay for an hour just to, to review, you know, someone you know and trust who's not going to go and – take the client or do anything like that um, and, and work that way. Um, mm. But this is always the risk that you have. Um, and also, a cool thing about what you do is you, you're you able to see how different um, different people and companies manage their finances. For example, you can see the, I guess, the one-man band, yeah. and you. but you've also, I, I, I know some of your clients, and you've also got the one percents, mm. the one percenters in there. Yeah. And do you find trends or different do you know do the one percenters do things differently do the you know what's your what's your what's your uh, view from the yeah absolutely your insider's view so what what i uh what i found is that the the finance of the rich and the famous being that top one percent is 
very much. It used to be five, ten years ago, you know, the only people that used to really delve in that, sp- that space were the big four accountants, you know, PwC, Deloitte. KPMG and Ernest What do you mean Young. by delve into that space? They used to look after these oh. really wealthy, lucrative clients. Um, what What's happened, and, and that could include ASX-listed companies or private wealthy families and, and bits and pieces, but what what's happening over time and what we've seen a real trend in is that smaller companies are now utilising the same tips and tricks that these big, you know, monster, you know, the four biggest accounting firms in the world used to reserve for, for, for their clients and they were the only people to do it. You know, things like tax consolidations and just really, you know, effective structuring. They would they would do things to um, better their financial position. And it used to, you know, Cub wouldn't go to well, a big four accounting firm necessarily because they don't particularly want to spend $200,000 on their accounting and tax compliance each year. So it was it was deemed you know unachievable or unreachable for for everyday businesses. But what's happening is a lot of those strategies are trickling down now to smaller businesses and to individuals, um, and those people can now access a lot of those strategies and do the same things that the you know the top one percent are doing um, to preserve their money and, and maximize their benefits. But does that mean that um, really that means that outside the big four accounting firms? Uh, accounting firms like you, you, like you guys and and others are now using those practices absolutely. more or less. Yeah, absolutely. There, there's been a real resurgence or a real surge in you know um, tax lawyers and tax advisors now working on a, on sort of a really ad hoc basis where previously you'd had to go to these firms that had an in house tax counsel or something like that. So we've got five or six tax lawyers that we can just you know, bug for, you know, 15 minutes and, you know, we'll get charged for 15 minutes worth of their time to then put together a really complicated strategy for, you know, for our clients that's going to maximise their position, save them tax and potentially, you know, make their business saleable in the future because it's all consolidated into one, you know, into one company instead of five different companies that have got five different issues in, in them and things like that. And so what are some of your tips and tricks in regards to, I guess, structuring or strategy... Um, uh, I think it's always, st- yeah, I think it's looking at what you're trying to achieve. Um, so what I mean by that is the, your structure should be dictated by what your, your, what your business tries to do. Um, so if you are in the business of, um, accumulating working capital, so if you sell products and you want to reinvest your profits into the business, then you want to look at restructuring into, into a corporate structure so that you can pay the lowest possible tax rate, which is 26% now. And, you know, you can reinvest the remaining 74% back into your business. So Daniel Hakim sets up Cub under his personal ABM, goes and makes a million bucks this year. Um, he pays his first 180 grand, he pays tax at, you know, between zero and 39%. But once once you make 180 grand or more, you pay tax at 47 cents in the dollar um, under your personal, you know, name and your marginal tax rate as an individual. If you were to set up Cub as a company, then you would pay tax at 26%. Um, and you, you know, so then all of a sudden you'd only pay $260,000 in tax rather than closer to 470000 oh, So that's more so for the, uh, so when there's one man bands and things like that, yeah, they, they're, but, do, they're setting things up in their personal ABNs. Yeah, but people have still even set up businesses in trusts and um, other sort of legal structures that allow people to split their income, but it still has to, someone's still got to pay the tax um, being, you know, you, your family, your, your parents, and things like but that. For example, even so, even with let's actually use Cub as the example. Hmm. If Cub takes the money, Cub pay, pays. Uh, what's the corporate tax? 
It's 26%. Um, 26%. But if I'm to take that money out of CUB, I still have to pay the difference between CUB's tax, which is basically me paying tax anyway because Mm. – it's my company. Yeah, that's and, right. And I still have to pay the difference between Cubs corporate tax and my personal tax, which would be 40 whatever percent. Yeah. So you end up losing it anyway, no? Absolutely, but it's a timing thing. So you've got these $180,000 bands each year that you can use to get money out and you've got family, friends and, and bits and pieces that you can also distribute to. Through a trust. Through a trust. And you, what you're trying to do is maximise these the use of these bands on an annual basis so that you're not – because once you – once if you don't use it, you lose it, right? On on, on the 29th of the – Because the trust has to spit out money. Yeah, on the 30th of June, if you don't use that that person's income band, then when it rolls over to the 1st of July, it's done. You can't do you it. You can't do so it So why don't you explain that to us? Why don't you explain the, the, this system of having a trust – yeah. In order to distribute uh, the, the wealth of the business. Yeah. So, so I, we, I always start, and what's important to note is all of these structures cost money, both to set up and then to administer. And so you've got to determine what the, the financial benefit is. Yeah. Well, you've got to have enough money. You've, yeah. You've, you've got to have enough money. It's got to be worth to enough worth. To, to make it work. So, what I always do with, with clients is I start at what I call the, the Rolls Royce structure, being the creme de la creme, which potentially might be you know, a company. Uh, Set you know owned by a trust or two companies, company owned by a company owned by a trust, and for various reasons, and then you sit there and go, well, that's going to cost you X amount to set up. That's okay, but that's not feasible. What can we do now to you know to get a similar benefit without spending all of that money? And you sort of work backwards. But the one thing that's really useful is when you're setting up these businesses, if you can set up, you know. The, uh, the owner of that business or your ownership so- side of that business into a, a discretionary trust, then that's going to give you the ability to split your income between yourself, your wife, your family members. Absolutely. Um, so all of a sudden, you know, if you, were, if you earn $400,000 a year worth of income and profit out of that business, tax on, you know, 400 is going to be like 180, but tax on 104 times is not... Yeah. You know, it's it's not. I can send Laura a hundred grand. I can send my brother a hundred grand. I can send my nephews a hundred grand each. That's right. And they pay much less tax with hundred grand. Yeah, or you might. But the money comes to me. Or you might grab some of that money and say, I'm going to set up a new business or I'm going to do a property development. (laughs) Laura, Laura just looked at me like, yeah, send me the money. (laughs) (laughs) Or you might choose to roll that money into a different project, like a property development, Mm. or something like that, you can distribute that money directly into that investment so that that pays 26% tax rather than and 47. No and yeah. and then, yes, you're going to have a problem when that profit comes out, but you've at least got the but opportunity. But you've used the money now. You've got access to more money now because you haven't paid the tax on it now. So I can then go invest that money into yeah. a new venture and I've got more of it to invest. Yeah, that's right. When I want the profit, I've got to pay it, but, but at least you've delayed paying it and you've utilized the money better. That's exactly right. And, and then, you know, the other side of these new structures and, and restructuring is people are looking at new ways to incentivize staff members um, through employee share plans and things like that. So their previous structure may not accommodate for that. So they're looking at restructuring into things that are, are more effective so that they can, they can give people the option to, to have equity in their businesses and, and keep them along for the ride. Uh, explain that structure to us. How would, how would someone look at that? Yeah, so, what would that look like? Yeah, so so if you run a company um, and you f- you qualify for various concessions and you've got to be open for a certain amount of time, you've got to have a certain level of turnover and bits and pieces. I won't go into it all, but you can qualify for the um, the employee the concessional employee share scheme um, arrangements, whereby you can um, provide a you know shares or the options to purchase shares to employees now, 
um, so that if you eventually sell down the track, um, they have sort of a, a piece of the pie along the ride. Stock options. Yeah, that's right. That's what it's commonly called, isn't it? That's it. In America, they call them stock options, yeah. Oh, what do we call them? Oh, Conce- we call them, yeah, 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 the share options. Sounds like and confectionary like, shares. Confectionary, yeah. yep. Shares that are unhealthy for you. That's right. Um, and, 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 and so how they work basically is that, let's say I want Laura to have, um, I want to grant Laura, she's worked at Cub for six years. I want to grant Laura uh, 1% of Cub. Mm-hmm. Um, if Cub is to sell for a um, um, billion dollars, Laura would get, oh God, please make my maths correct, $10 million. Is that, is that, yeah. no, sorry, she would she would be able to sell her shares worth $10 million minus what they were worth when I gave her that one. That's exactly right. So if they right. were worth 500 grand, she gets 9.5 million. That's exactly right. And that, that, what's, that's, what's good about that is the, your, the team don't have to put money in. They haven't actually got the equity yet. They've got mm. the option to sell the equity. That's but right. But they can do it without having to invest any money. Yeah, that's exactly right. And these are the things that your Googles and your Facebooks and Amazons used to use or were the only ones using for quite a while. And America's got different rules that, to, to Australia, but yeah. The same thing was, that, you know, for the case of, you know, any big sort of, you know, ASX listed company or, or anything like that. And these things are now trickling down to smaller businesses and people are, are, are using that as incentives to keep staff of, around. It's, it's definitely an incentive and you can use that, but it also depends on what the type of business is. It depends on what the strategy of the owner is. Like, for example, um, and I don't have any intention on, on selling Cub uh, ever at the, at this point in time. I, I don't even ever want to raise capital. I don't, I don't want to relinquish equity. Mm. Um, uh, for this, I got my reasons behind it, but, but, um, if I was to issue stock options, um, it's, it's, it would be less valuable because, well, the business isn't selling mm. and we're not a tech company, which means your valuations don't skyrocket to that billion dollars. That's right. What would be different that for example, and the reason I use Cub is because most a lot of companies aren't tech companies, so mm. th- therefore scale isn't as uh, achievable. Yeah. Uh, because for us to scale, you need to find more clubhouses. You've got to get more physical memberships in. You've got to have more people to. You know, we're not selling a, a software or, or an app. Yep. Um, the sales process is harder and more expensive to scale. So, but what we could do, like for example, what I could do, and, and other companies like Cub could do, is um, have is release technology products mm. for their particular clientele, things that are more scalable yep. and provide um, staff stock options in those things because they're the ones that can actually scale, can have those huge valuations. And can be bought with independently and, of Cub and, you, and people can have a, an exit event before exactly, Cub gets be there. In, Absolutely. independently of Cub. And so that, that brings a really good point up to the business – the idea of the business should dictate everything that happens afterwards. You don't sit there and say, I want to set up a company and then make the business fit into a company. You go, I want to set up a business that does this. And then your advisor, and I say advisor over accountant because we should be advising people, not just accounting for them. Um, Your advisor should then, you know, say, well, this is the best way to do that, you know, based on what you're trying to achieve. It's not... It should be bespoke. It shouldn't be, you know, off the shelf type advice. It should be tailored specifically to them. And and I think that's what's really achievable now for people. Rather than um, in the past, it was it wasn't economically feasible to get that off that bespoke advice from people because you had to spend really big money on people that knew that knowledge. Where there's a much 
broader pool of people or we've got access to a broad pool of people that can utilize that knowledge. Also, a lot of the top tier accountants from the big firms, the big four particularly, have, you know, left, have started their own firms. They've got a, they've got a forced retirement policy at some, some of them have 55 to retire. And so accountants sit there and go, I've got plenty of juice in the tank. I'm not like a, I haven't been a bricklayer all my life and I haven't got a, you know, a sore back from, from doing all that. So I've got 10, 15 years left. I wonder, what, 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 I've never heard about that before. Why would they do that? Uh, they need to provide new partners with the opportunity to, to move in. So they need oh, to recycle so they their partner the old pool. partners. Yeah. Uh, makes sense. Makes sense. Mm. I've never heard that before. Yeah. it's. Uh, I, I saw an AFR article a couple of years ago and a bunch <laughs> of partners that were 55 or 56 got booted out of Deloitte or something, just went and set up their own firm. It's kind of like how grandparents have to pass away in order to make more room on the earth for their grandchildren. Yeah. Or great-grandchildren. That's one way of looking at it. Absolutely. (laughs) If we live till 400, (laughs) then... We'd all be fucked. Yeah. (laughs) There'd be no room. The earth's struggling as it is. (laughs) And and, um, what about... um, This might be a stupid question, but... Is the idea of a profit share for, for for the team, is that something to do with accounts and that structuring or is that completely different? Yeah, I think it is. I think it is because the the major apprehension that people have with profit shares is they go, do I trust the person that's giving me the profit share? Because exactly. can he just pump a whole bunch of expenses in? You know, I don't want to pay for Daniel's car. Yeah. Right? And For example, like, I could charge everything through the company and, yeah. and the profit gets less. So I get that's exactly right. So but you've got on to the have- flip side to that, Sorry, on the flip yeah. side, they'd be like, yeah, well, you're still getting extra money though. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> you're, getting, you're getting free cash. So it wasn't going to happen in the first place. And and that's on right. On top of the wage and earnings. Yeah. So so we we do get involved as sort of that independent verifiable party to, to do some of those bits and pieces for clients. Um, and, you know, that, that seems to work. Or an alternative thing that's is right. that you could do a revenue, a percentage of revenue after an X figure because you'd know that you're – I guess that if your running costs were a million dollars a year, you could do, okay, uh, there's a share between whoever um, of 5% of anything after a million dollars. So if if the cost is a million and the revenue is 5 million, there's 5% of, four million. of, of 4 million, which would be 200 grand. You're the accountant, is that correct? <laughs> Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, oh, my maths is on point today. Killing Feel good. It. Yeah. No, yeah. Done and two big figures. You can also do the, um, you can also do, say, a percentage of gross profit. So you sit there and you go, our revenue is this, our wage bill is this, because you can't manipulate your wage bill for your sales staff or something like that. And you go, all right, that's the, that's the gross profit. Um, and then you'll get a percentage of that. And then if, you know, come 12 months time, your sales staff might then, you know, try to negotiate a much higher salary, you sit there and go, well, that's fine because it's coming out of your profit share as well. So mm. you're incurring yeah, some of that. Like you're wearing some of that cost. 100%. Um, whereas if it was just benchmark revenue, you'd have to then adjust that sales target or that that threshold to get over. And so let's say you've got clients, they're bringing in heaps of cash mm-hmm. and they make, they've got great successful businesses. Uh, do you advise them with what to, to do with the money or do you see what many of the, I guess, one percenters, uh, where they would put their money? Is yeah. Yeah, so so we've got a financial planning arm to our business, but we work with somebody to provide that service because we we think we're pretty good at accounting and we want to make sure that we're giving people the best accounting advice. Um, and if we start, you know, 
spending a heap of time in financial planning, then we're probably going to become this jack of all trade, master of none type scenario. Which I think is the pitfall of, of many, many companies. They try to be too many things. I think you've got to know enough about it. So to be able to talk about it, um, the one thing about financial planning is it's heavily regulated and heavily licensed. So we, um, you've got to be really careful where you, where you work in that, in that space. Um, we try to do for a lot of our business clients and, and things like that and is sort of provide a bit of a, a quasi sort of family office um, arrangement where we talk strategy and what their strategy should be with the, uh, with their, uh, with their money and their wealth. Um, and then, I try to keep product off to the side and let somebody who knows product talk about product. What, what do you mean by product? Product is, okay, I've got, how much money do you have to invest? That's a strategy decision and say, well, you need this much, you know, working out what their cash flow looks like, working out what their investable assets are. That's a strategy decision in, in my opinion. Then they go, all right, well, I've got a million dollars to invest. What am I going to go and put that in? That's a product piece in that, you know, do you put it in ASX listed shares? Do you put it in property? Do you put it in you know, startups, do you put it in something? That's a product. I've got, got a good question for you. Just sort yeah. of. What would you recommend be the, actually I have two good questions. What would the first is, what would you recommend would be the amount of cash uh, a business should hold in its account? Uh, I guess as a, putting in terms as the amount of months that cash pool could sustain that business. Yeah. So, so how much cash? We generally hold? recommend six months of working capital. Three to six months is a really good, a really good buffer so people can start at three, work their way up to six. And that future proofs you from a, a recession, recession, a COVID. Um, we, we deal with a lot of real estate agents. <laughs> Divorce. Um, and 2019 was a horrible year for real estate agents in Melbourne and Victoria. Not because the property market went like that or that. It was mainly because the property market did nothing. It was so low on a transactional piece. And real estate agents as a business – they actually don't make money in a high market or a down market. They don't make more or they make slightly more, slightly less, but they actually make money transacting. They're in the business of turning over property. So if people aren't selling, it becomes really painful. So three to six months is that buffer to sit there and say of, of overheads, of operational expenses. So not your variable cost that you, you know, if for every, you know, chair you sell, you know, you make, you, know, you have to buy another chair. That's, that's not an operational, that's not an overhead, that's a variable cost, but Six months of keeping the doors open is six a six months is a good number. That's yeah. a that's a safe conservative number that that businesses should. Have. I would agree with that too. I got assessed with the one year thing, but but um, holding enough cash for a year. But there's nothing wrong with that too because if you need to access that that cash, it's there. And as long as perhaps I I say, oh, I don't want to go. I, I want to spend this money to open another club or to I don't know put mm. a, put more money into uh, these technology things we're doing at the moment. Um, I'll never let it drop below the six-month point. That's, yeah. That could be your – so you can have a, bo- a bottom point. You can't spend money after that point. The other thing I'll say to that, though, is is because people will look at that and say, oh, geez, I spend 100 grand a month in my business. I've got to keep 600 grand in the bank. That that might be unachievable. What we say is six months of working capital. So if you run a debtors-heavy business where you collect money on terms, then your debtors – should, you know, can form part of that working capital amount as well because you know you're going to receive that money in the future. It's You should have six months of working capital there, not necessarily um, just sitting, you know, have, have, a, have six months worth of cash. Okay. Um, but that's that's Just depends on dependent. what your business is capable of yeah, doing. If and your then, business is capable of doing the six months, then why not hold it? 
Yeah, that's right. And then it also, I also look at that and say, well, if you've got eight months worth of cash, worth of working capital sitting in your debt as well, you don't just bleed your account down to zero because you still need money in the bank to pay your bills when they come in. So you've got to have a, a fair compromise and a fair balance there. Okay. And what about the second question was, what about with distribution of dividends? Mm. You know, do you take, if you have your cash minimum reserve in your bank, mm. do you just take all the dividends or would you take a percentage of dividends? How, how, what, what, have you, um, what have you seen? Oh, look, I think if you account for everything that the business is going to incur adequately, um, then I've got no problem taking, once you've got the six months, taking you know everything over and above that. But make sure that that factors in your tax obligations, your superannuation, all these obligations that you don't pay daily or whatever, you pay periodically, quarterly or, or what have you, or annually. You've got to make sure that you've factored everything, your net profit after tax and go, well, all right, I've earned all this money this year. That's great. Now I've paid this much tax. Now I need to sit there and say, all right, now I'll take my six months off that. And then I'll go, all right, then there's still a bit in the bank and that can absolutely go out to the investors. And, no problem. and how frequently uh, would you think is, uh, I mean, you're obviously not advising anyone right now. We're just talking, but how frequently do you think dividends should be distributed monthly, uh, quarterly, annually, every six months? I think it really depends on how you, how, how periodic and how adequately you track and measure your business. Um, I think monthly is a bit of overkill. Um, you might, what you might do yeah, is calm down. It's not a wage. What you might do is you've got a really consistent business. You might sit there and say, well, I know our business makes day in, day out this much money. And we can, after our bills, we can always put this amount aside. So you might say, well, why don't I pay half of that out as it's just a monthly recurring direct debit. And then quarterly, we do a balance up and see what happens. Um, you know, quarterly is generally a pretty good time. I think it's a bit unfair to wait six months. Um, quarterly is that, that good balance in between. But if you know that you've got consistent revenue in your business, then I wouldn't mind. Yeah, I'd be happy to tell Depends on the business. Some businesses have been around family businesses for 40 years. They know exactly what their business is doing. Absolutely. So really when you're in the first 10 years, like, like a cub, mm. uh, when you're in the first 10 years, you're still learning. The business is still changing. That's the other thing. Because sometimes, depending on the age of the business, if a business is 40 years old, they don't want to grow anymore. They don't care. They just want to keep getting paid. And uh, paid forever. They just wanted to. They just wanted to survive and not change. They don't need more. They don't need less. It's just keep as is. That's right. Uh, they're averse to change. They don't want that. But you have younger businesses in, the, I guess, first ten years or even first twenty years of life. Mm. There is a lot of change. There is more risk because you're trying new things to to have more profit. There, and therefore, so you might have a a slower, a less frequent dividend distribution as opposed to a business that's had decades of track records, doesn't want to change. They're not, there's less risk so we can distribute money more. Absolutely. And I think that that's, it gets back down to that. What are you trying to do, right? If you're, there's no point, if you're trying to grow your business really aggressively and reinvest money into it, there's probably no point ripping every dollar of profit after your six months out of the business. You probably need that money in to grow and accumulate more working capital so that you can then grow and keep doing that rinse and repeat. You know, tech businesses rarely pay dividends because they're in the business of growing. They're not in the business of yeah, cash flow. They don't flow. like profits. That's why they've got no dividends to pay us mm. ever. They don't have profits. That's they exactly. all lose money. That's it. Um, but that's a different business strategy. The strategy is uh, acquire as much of the market share as possible across the planet to increase valuation and then sell for my 300 million to 300 billion apparently. These that's days. exactly so, it. Yeah. So um, just different strategies in business. Yeah. And, I've, and I think that it's a really good point to say that yeah, the, the strategy should dictate, you know, your policy and your process, just like it should dictate your structure. 
um, and work it that way. So I think if you work backwards, then you're always going to be fine. You've just got to, um, you can't work forwards and say, well, you can, it's just, you've got to be prepared to change your business. If you want a recurring income stream, don't go and start a tech business, right? If you want um, a value a value based business, then don't go and start a, a cash flow based business because either, both of those are going to have their pitfalls and, and challenges. Mm. Or you can do what we're trying to do and have a cash flow business and then start tech businesses off, to, <laughs> off it. it. <laughs> um, awesome, man. And um, uh, you mentioned that you. Uh, sorry, actually, can you just tell us also a bit of the scale of of, of Smith Futural, your your firm? Uh, is it? Uh, I mean, how many people do you got in the firm? Yeah. So we, we've got about 40 staff at the moment, um, varying from your business support team to your, your partners and, um, and directors. Um, we sort of, we just, I think we've just uh, clocked our, I don't know, 12 or 13 year anniversary, which is, um, which is pretty cool. Um, but we actually started from a, an ASX listed company, um, called WHK Group at the time. So at the time, they were the fifth biggest accounting firm in, in Australia. Um, they were a, what they call an aggregator. So what they would do is they would go and buy smaller practices, bring them under their brand um, and pay you know, a multiple of their business profit as their you know, as a value. And then they, were, inflate their, they were listed their on the ASX price. so they could you know, use that to inflate their stock price. Um, they tried to be sort of this business solution. Um, and then I would sort of, I was probably working there for, 12, 18 months. Um, and then the, um, the partners sort of the partners that, you know, started Smith Futural, um, had a bit of a disagreement with, uh, with middle management. Um, middle management was probably angling towards shareholder return. We were trying to look after our clients and decided it was pretty good opportunity to part ways and move on and do our own thing again. So they sort of bought the practice back, but generously also brought all the staff along with them as well. So, I think there was 22 or 24 it's, of us. It's a cool stage of it's, – it's a great, I guess, size of accounting firm because, like, for me, like, hearing that it, as a business owner, it's like, okay, well, it's not the – it's not a small firm. It's a successful firm. It's a big firm. It's been around a long time. It's not going to overcharge me because it's not one of the big publicly listed firms, mm. but it's not – also a risk because it's not a small new firm. It's kind of a, like, that's a trusted, well-priced, good, like you're, you're in that kind of happy. Yeah. We're definitely in a sweet spot. Um, I, I'd love to, yeah, I think every business would love to grow a little bit. And I think over time we'll, we'll, we'll have a growth sort of plan. Um, absolutely. But we've sort of just naturally sort of grown over time, um, from, you know, 22 to sort of 40 staff and yeah, really enjoying, you know, that, that size and, and scale. And you know, I think we lodge close to 3000 tax returns a year sort of thing. So we've got that sort of, that sort of level of clientele. And as an accounting firm, you, I mean, you see the mistakes other businesses make and you see the pitfalls and, and the sufferings of business owners. Yeah. I guess with that knowledge, I, what, what has been the, what has been the, what's been the hardest thing that's happened to you in your career, whether it be you or, or the business or whatever? Yeah. We've been pretty lucky that we've had a pretty stable sort of business, you know, financially along the way. So, um, definitely have an opportunity to learn from other businesses and mistakes that they make. Um, but we, the hardest thing that happened to us is, um, our partner was, our firm was founded with four partners. Um, and I used to work predominantly for one of those, uh, who was my mentor and, and a good friend of mine, um, Tony. Um, 
Tony's he, the great communicator. Yeah, mentioned. he was the, the one that was in the communications game. Um, but unfortunately, in 2012, he actually um, was diagnosed with with cancer and had a bit of a fight with um, had a long fight with cancer that he unfortunately lost sort of towards the tail end of 2016. Um, that was a really tough transition in our firm because we had to manage client expectations and understand what they were wanting and needing from us. You know, just because there's one less person and arguably a really important person in our business doesn't change the fact that we've still got tax returns to lodge, we've still got obligations to meet and clients still want advice that they need. Um, yeah, it's, 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 it's a tough spot because it's, well, you're still a business, you still need to deliver, despite you know, tragedies that happen, you still you still need to deliver your, your clients. Yeah, yeah. Not and, but what about yourself personally? Because I that, that feeling of, cause would you say he was one of your biggest mentors? Or? Oh, absolutely, hands down. And and that feeling of I guess losing um, losing your greatest mentor mm. is that a lonely feeling? Is it? It was. Um, luckily, the um, so I've been really blessed in that when I've bought into the business, we've I've had somebody buy in you know with me. So we've they they selected multiple you know people at the time that were uh, that were sort of you know selected at that point, and that they they sort of you know wanted the the next sort of tier of, of equity holders. Um, so I've got a close friend in the, in the business that, that I work, work, work with a lot who we both worked under Tony and, um, and we sort of had the opportunity to, I suppose, share our, uh, our burden, um, both you know, emotionally and work-wise, which was been really, we were really blessed and lucky to do so. To have each other. Um, and we were really, yeah, and we were really bullish on making sure that we got the work done and we, we sort of finalized and, you know, made sure we serviced our clients and uh, appropriately. I, I guess what was, what was, uh, other than the communication thing we said, which is brilliant, what, what would you say from Tony, from your, from, from, from this incredible man and mentor, what would you say one of the best examples or lessons that you took from him are? He always wanted to find the best result for a client. So it wasn't just finding the, the result that is legally compliant. It's let's take this a step further and get the best result possible. Um, whether that's at the end of the year with, with tax work or whether that is, you know, sitting down with somebody about their business and determining a structure. Um, it's really easy to say no to somebody when they are doing, when, when they want to do something and it just can't be done. It's really easy to just go, no, we can't do it. What I think is really important is to explain why they can't do it and what the other options might be that might be a fair compromise. And, I think what I learned from him the most was to always provide people with those compromises and those options because people, people, you know, need you to do the right thing, but then, you know, you're not a valuable or a trusted advisor to somebody if you're not advising them. If you're just complying, then um, you're not, you're advice. not, you're never going to take that advice. step, you know, over the line from being, you know, accountant to, to advisor or, and, and a lot of my clients are friends. Um, you know, they, they'd sort of, you know, teeter on border on that sort of level and, uh, and absolutely. So amazing. Well, we have to wrap it up. Um, do you want to share with us, I guess your favorite book? Yeah. So, so my favorite book is probably the four hour work week by Tim Ferriss. Um, are you lazy? Absolutely. <laughs> uh, trust me, I work a lot more than four yeah, hours. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but I, I like that book because it, it, it promotes self-evaluation and self-reflection and making sure that, you're always looking at better ways of doing things. And I think that's the biggest takeaway from that. Mm. Um, I need to read that. I have to be honest. You know, the reason I've never read that book is because I, I've, I was always like, 
I don't want to work four hours a week. I'm not reading a book. <laughs> yeah. But but um, so it, what it does is it makes you think about how to do things more efficiently. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. So he he tells the story. Same result, that, less time. He tells the story that he went through and he started a a, a product business that was a. Uh, uh, it was called Brain Quick, and it was a you know it was a supplement sort of business. And he was working eighty hours a week, making good money, but burning himself out, couldn't live his life. And then he basically just booked a trip overseas one way and fixed every problem as it went. But there's a systematic way of doing it, so he didn't have to spend all the time and waste it and all of that. And it goes through these hobby businesses and things like that that you could set up side hustles and and the stuff and stuff, um, which I strongly recommend. And you know, speak to your accountant about. Getting those sorted as well, um, absolutely. Get but, your side hustle sorted. But if I had a side hustle, I'd die. I, I, I think you, <laughs> if you're going to do something, do one thing and just do that. Great. Well, if I set up a side, if someone's, you know what I hate? It happens to me all the time. Someone might say to me, "Oh, so is Cabe your only business?" I'm like, "Yes, motherfucker, that's my only business." I'm not. We. I don't also secretly own Microsoft. You know, like <laughs> it's just, yeah, this is hard enough. Like I, I already do big hours on this thing. I don't think anyone should have a side hustle. If you want to have a break from your business, I can understand that. Like mm. pick up reading or go box or like – or start a business that you don't expect to make any money. It's just something to occupy your brain outside of work. But I don't believe in, in, in side hustles. Uh, did I just take over your whole little Not thing? at all. No, that's fine. That's As my your opinion, what, I suppose. What, I guess what's your opinion on side hustles? Uh, I think the best time to start a new business is while you're currently working in an existing business because um, – and the financially responsible thing, and this is probably more angled at employees rather than business owners, mm. is make sure you've got stable income coming through. And they call it, you know, they don't call it your five to nine to five job. They call it your five to nine job. You know, you're doing the work after hours to try and build something. Um, look, oh, that's a great way for an employee to start a business. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah that's right. I, yeah. When you're that's talking cool. about other, when you're talking about business owners, absolutely. There's a bit of a difference in, you know, when you're talking about a side hustle, um, your side hustle becomes a pivot for your current business, doesn't it? Like it's mm. yeah. it should be you innovating your current business. Yeah. Now, if you've got a hobby that you can monetize, then absolutely go through that. Um, you know, to to an extent, works, I, I think you can. If it works, but I I don't think that whatever you focus on works, even in your business. Mm. If I'm to focus on our sales process for a quarter, sales work best. If I'm to focus on our uh, engagement process, like which is basically results in retention. Retention goes – It's well, even in your own business, whatever you focus on works. Oh, absolutely. If you focus on something outside of your business, well, you're going to assume your business will, will – will, uh, anyway, I don't even know if that's true. But this has been absolutely awesome. Like I said, you were the first uh, accountant um, that we've we've ever had uh, on the show, which is kind of weird to think about it, no, Laura? But um, – uh, that was a brilliant conversation, man. Thank you so much for being a member. You've been a member for so long. Like you said, you're one of the founding members here in Melbourne. We're so proud to have you as a member. Uh, and thank you to all of our incredible listeners. Um, I really I really hope you enjoyed the show today. Uh, Andy, do you have anything you want to say before we wrap up? No, I'm, I'm, I think just self-reflection is really important, both yourself and in your business. And I think, um, you know, make sure you're making sure you're getting – make sure you're making sure you get the right advice. Uh, also, if you want to reach out to Andy Watson, a great friend of mine and longtime Cub member, um, go to cub.club forward slash podcast. You'll have his details there. You can reach out to him on LinkedIn. You'll have also uh, some tips and tricks from him. Hope you enjoyed the show.